0: Be reading this morning from Genesis chapter fifteen. Genesis chapter fifteen. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward." But Abram said, "Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus?" Then Abram said, "Look." You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, "'Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions.' Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Ken- Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephiim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is obviously the most important verse in our text this morning. Genesis 15.6 is quoted multiple times in the New Testament, in Romans, in Galatians, and in James. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible regarding our salvation. Quite obviously then, the key doctrine from our text this morning is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But what I want us to see in particular this morning is the relationship of that doctrine of justification by faith alone to the Abrahamic covenant. And this is important for us as Christians to rightly understand the doctrine of justification, especially as it relates to the covenant with Abraham. Because, first of all, this is a matter of salvation, It answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Which is really the most important question a person can ask. But this is also important for us as Baptists because there is a lot of confusion regarding the covenant with Abraham and our relationship to and interest in that covenant. How you understand God's covenant with Abraham will determine how you understand the nature of the new covenant And therefore will determine your agreement either with the Presbyterians or with the particular Baptists. And if you agree with the Presbyterians regarding this covenant with Abraham, then defending believers' baptism becomes much more difficult. So this is important for us as Christians, but also as Baptists. Genesis 15 is a very important chapter in the Bible. Not only because of verse 6. Genesis 15 is full of firsts. And what I mean by that is that there are a number of very important words, phrases, and ideas that are introduced here in Genesis 15. There are at least 11 important biblical concepts introduced in the first six verses of this chapter So I want to start by looking briefly at each of these firsts, each of these ideas that will lead us to verse 6 and a a discussion of justification by faith alone, and then we'll examine the relationship between verse 6 and the rest of the chapter. Now, six of the 11 firsts that are found in this chapter are found in verse 1, six of them. Which tells us that not only is verse 6 important, but verse 1 is equally important uh, as we read the rest of scriptures. There are ideas that are introduced here in Genesis 15.1 that are important for us to understand and grasp so that we rightly read the rest of scripture. So let's read Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. So, sometime after the events of chapter 14 and Abram's rescue of Lot and his meeting with Melchizedek, God comes and speaks to Abram. Now, this might not seem so incredibly important to us because we've read of God speaking various times in the last 14 chapters, and we're used to the idea of God speaking as we read the rest of Scripture. Thus says the Lord, God, God speaks to his people. But this is the first time in the Scriptures that the phrase, the word of the Lord, is used. The first time. It's an incredibly important idea, the Word of the Lord. We we saw it Wednesday night in our study of the book of Acts. So stop and think for just a moment and consider the importance of this phrase, the Word of the Lord. This book that we call the Bible is the Word of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, we continually read of the Word. And in John 1, the apostle tells us that Christ is the word incarnate, the word in flesh. So this is of great significance. It's also significant that the first time the word word is used is in reference to God and not to the speech of man. This phrase is also important in relation to two others that we find in this verse as well. How did this word of the Lord come to Abraham? It tells us that it came in a vision. This is the first time in Scripture that a vision is mentioned. This is the second first in our text. The significance of this cannot be overstated. When we read through the Scriptures and we encounter people who have visions, who are those people? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the other prophets. They receive the word of the Lord in visions. Zacharias is said to have had a vision when he was in the temple in Luke 1, 22, when the angel tells him of the birth of his son, who will be John the Baptist. And of course, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel, who spoke of the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, saying that your young men... Shall see visions. Peter and Paul both have visions in the book of Acts. And finally, the Apostle John records for us his visions of heaven in the end of time in the book of Revelation. Visions are clearly important in the scriptures to God's revelation to man. And what's more, they are tied to the prophetic. The prophets and the apostles receive visions. This has bearing on Genesis 15 because Abram receives the word of the Lord in a vision just as the prophets do throughout Scripture. When we get to Genesis chapter 20, verse 7 tells us that Abraham was a prophet. There God is speaking to Abimelech, the king of Griar, and he says, "'Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet.'" And he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So before we get there to chapter 20, where Abraham is called a prophet and where prophetic type judgment is threatened if he is not treated as such, here it is firmly established that Abraham is indeed a prophet. He receives the word of the Lord in a vision. The third first that we find here is in the words that are spoken to him at the beginning of this vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid. Once again, the import of this might not register with us because we're so familiar with this phrase. We see it throughout the scripture many times. Whenever a person has a vision or is visited by an angel. It is often accompanied by this phrase, do not be afraid. Now, there are two reasons for this. First, it is a fearful thing to encounter the living God. Often, the one who receives such a visit falls down as if dead because of the sheer overwhelming terror of the holiness of God. Second, God often reveals himself and speaks to his people during times of great distress, And so he speaks these words as a comfort to his people. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, as he spoke to Joshua. So these words are a comfort telling us that God is present. He is with us. He is bigger than whatever it is that causes us fear. And that may be the case in this instance. Some commentators seem to think so. Scripture doesn't tell us specifically what Abraham might have been afraid of. It could have been that his victory in the previous chapter, uh, that he fears that it will be returned with reprisals, that he triumphed over these kings, but that those nations might regroup and, and come back to seek vengeance. It could be that he's afraid that his neighbors will look at him with suspicion. Knowing that he defeated the kings who had defeated them, and, and wondering, will Abraham now exert this military strength over us in order to make himself a king? It could be that his neighbors are questioning. The king of Sodom offered him all the goods, and he said no. How much gold does he have stashed away in his tent up there in the mountains? kind of like Bilbo's neighbors there in the Lord of the Rings, wondering how much gold he had stashed away in his home there in the hill. It could be that his rescue of Lot had reminded Abram that he has yet had no heir, no offspring. God had promised to make him into a great nation. He has no heir. He's gone and rescued his nephew, but he has no offspring of his own. This seems to me the most likely scenario, but Scripture doesn't specify what Abraham feared. The point is, God is present with him, so he has no reason to fear. Whatever the fear might be, God is present. Which leads us to the fourth first, and that is the first I am statement found in Scripture. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In verse 7, we see another of these where the God speaks and says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I am your shield. I am the Lord. Now, of course, we know from later revelation that the identification of God as self-existent expressed in the name I am is a very important biblical doctrine. And so the I am will be associated with God from this point forward. And Christ, of course, in in the New Testament, particularly uh, we saw in our study of John a few weeks ago in our New Testament survey that Jesus uses seven I am statements to clearly identify himself as God. And one of these seems directly tied to this episode here in Genesis 15. In John 8, Jesus is having a discussion with the Jewish leaders and they accuse him of being a Samaritan or possibly having a demon. And he answers that he is honoring the Father in heaven and says, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Which prompts them to question, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Abraham, the great father of the nation of Israel, is dead and buried. Jesus is saying that he can give people everlasting life. And so they ask him, just who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than Abraham? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. If I say I do not know him, I should be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here, Jesus uses the I am statement, the the self-existent identification of God, and applies it to himself. And he says that he existed before Abraham, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and that he did see it and was glad. Some commentators see in this the possibility that the vision Abraham has here in Genesis 15 was actually of a pre-incarnate Christ who appeared and spoke to him. Henry Morris in his commentary says just this, it was probably this very occasion to which Jesus referred when he first identified himself to Abraham as the self-existing God, the one who was able and willing to supply every need in time and eternity. Just as Christ uses the I am statements in John to identify himself in various ways, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd. So here in our text, our fifth first is that God identifies himself by saying, I am your shield. Now this is the first, but not by any means the last time God will be identified as a shield to those who trust him. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, Deuteronomy thirty three twenty nine. The God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Second Samuel twenty two three. As for God, his way is perfect; the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Psalm 18:30. Many times over throughout the Psalms and the Prophets God is identified as a shield to his people. And that idea is first expressed here in Genesis 15 to Abram. But God does not change, so we can take this comfort that was intended for Abraham as our own, knowing that God is our shield. He is our protection as well. We are safe in the hands of the Almighty for no one can separate us from his love. No one can snatch us out of his hand and he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is our shield. But just so we don't get too comfortable in this life thinking that God's protection means we can treasure the things of this world. He then speaks the sixth first, and that is to say, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This is the first mention of reward in the scriptures, and it is God himself who is said to be our eternal reward. It is the knowledge of the Holy One, relationship with our creator that is the ultimate good for which we are preserved. Abraham did right in refusing the offer of material reward from the king of Sodom. God is his reward. John Calvin comments and says, Were it deeply engraved on our minds that in God alone we have the highest and complete perfection of all good things, we should easily fix bounds to those wicked desires by which we are miserably tormented. We need it deeply engraved in our minds that God is our exceedingly great reward. Abram had proved this in the previous chapter, and here God reassures him that the desire of his heart was correct. Abram didn't care for the material wealth of the Canaanite cities, because as it says in Hebrews 11, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He's waiting for a permanent, eternal home. We sometimes talk about finding our forever home, by which we mean the house we intend to live in until we die. But Abram desired a true forever home where God dwells in a city that will not decay and cannot be torn down. David captured something of this when he spoke in Psalm 16, saying, "'O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Our reward, our inheritance is to dwell in the presence of God forever.'" And that is an exceedingly great reward, a far greater value than whatever earthly treasure the king of Sodom could offer. This first stated here in Genesis 15:1, but this is an important and recurring theme throughout all of Scripture. The seventh first that we find in our text is in verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Lord God. Now, the name Yahweh or Jehovah has been used previously in the text of Genesis, but always by itself or in combination with Elohim, which means Lord or Great One. But here, for the first time, we find the combination Adonai Jehovah, which means Sovereign One, or the One who is Sovereign. This title is then used 434 times in the Old Testament. It acknowledges God's absolute authority over all things. So for Abram to use this title here is rather interesting because he uses it when he's questioning God. But this implies to us that his question was not asked because he doubted God, but rather in faith he's just asking if God would reveal to him The details of how God will accomplish what he has promised. He has no doubts that God can and will keep his word, but he wants to know how it's going to happen. And so he asks this in verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Seeing that God has promised himself as the eternal reward, Abram understands that there is also a temporal blessing offered. That is, the promise made previously of a great nation to dwell in the land. And so Abraham asks, how will this be accomplished since he has no son? This idea of an heir is the eighth first in our text. And it's used six times here in chapter 15. It becomes a very important biblical idea the idea of the heir and the inheritance it follows through the entire old testament all the way into the new testament we are said to be inherit with christ of all good things but this word is translated here both as heir and as inheritance and god assures him the promise is not just spiritual but physical as well in verse 4 Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So God promises that Abraham will have a son who will come from his own body, offspring by physical descent. And then God shows that his promised blessing of a great nation has not been forgotten in verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. I grew up in a rather rural area similar to this in northern Missouri. But when I was 17, I moved to Wyoming to work on a ranch. And I'll never forget the first night I spent sleeping on the mountain up in Wyoming checking on cattle miles and miles from the nearest town. No light pollution from a city anywhere. Laying on that mountain, looking up at the sky, and for the first time, I saw the Milky Way and realized why it was called the Milky Way. There were so many stars, and it's overwhelming. And can you imagine in Abraham's day? The nearest city is down in the plains. He's up in the mountains near Hebron. And those cities would not have created the amount of light pollution that ours do. And so God takes Abram out of his tent and says, look up at the sky. I can only imagine what that sky must have looked like. Stars innumerable. And God says, count those. You can't count those. He says, your descendants will be like that. No human will be able to number them. What kind of faith would it take to believe a promise like that? But the next verse tells us he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham has no children. And God promises that he will have a biological son and shows him a sky full of stars and says, you will have so many descendants, they will be uncountable. And Abraham believes. He believes God, the one who had just, that he had just acknowledged to be Adonai Jehovah, the self-existent sovereign one. And because he believes God, believes God to be sovereign and authoritative over all things, he likewise believes the word of the sovereign one, trusting the promise because of the one who made it. This is the very first mention of belief in scriptures. The word faith is only used twice in the Old Testament. But this word, believe or believed, or sometimes translated as trust, is used 108 times, and this is the first time. It means to have confidence in or to trust yourself to someone. Abraham trusted himself to God. It's the same thing that we call faith in the New Testament. And this idea of faith, of trusting in God, this is our ninth first, and it is vitally important, and we'll come back to it in a moment. The 10th and 11th firsts, the last ones that we'll talk about this morning, are found in what the Lord did with Abram's faith. He accounted it to him for righteousness. This is the idea of imputation. The word is translated as imputed elsewhere. And this is the first time that imputation and righteousness are mentioned in the scriptures. These are vitally important concepts to understanding our salvation. Righteousness is the state of being in right standing or being morally upright and innocent before God imputation means to credit something to one that one person is or does to another person it means that without any inherent righteousness of his own the righteousness of another was credited to abram on account of his faith so that he was considered right in god's eyes and that righteousness of course is the righteousness of christ our substitute Arthur Pink says in his commentary, this faith was reckoned or counted unto him for righteousness, not that faith is accepted by God in lieu of righteousness. God God doesn't say, well, you have faith, so I'll count that instead of righteousness. That's not how it works. He says, it's not accepted by God in lieu of righteousness as an equivalent for righteousness, else faith would be a meritorious thing but that faith is the recipient of that righteousness by which we are justified. So it's not that God says, oh, you trust me? Good enough. I'll count that as being morally innocent. No, what it is is the actual moral righteousness of Christ is credited to us, accounted as ours when we trust or have faith in him. In other words, we recognize that we are without right standing before God, that our works are tainted by sin and are not righteous in his sight. But knowing this, we trust in the finished work of Jesus, the righteous one, the seed of Abraham, who lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father and then died on the cross in our place to atone for our sins. And when we trust in his finished work, then his righteousness is credited to us. Now, here's how the New Testament describes this. In Romans chapter 4, which we read some of earlier in our service, Romans 4, beginning in verse 16, he says, "'Abram, who is the father of us all, as it is written, "'I have made you a father of many nations.'" In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Abraham's faith was in the promise of the seed who would come, who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Arthur Pink again says, In Genesis 15, Abram's faith is directly connected to God's promise respecting his seed. Which seed was Christ? The faith which was counted for righteousness was the faith which believed what God had said concerning the promised seed. The object of saving faith, of justifying faith, must be Christ alone for he is the only righteous one whose righteousness could be imputed to us. If we trust in ourselves or in Muhammad or Buddha or anything other than Christ, there's no righteousness there to be credited to us. We must trust in Christ alone if we are to be found right in God's sight. So how does that relate to the covenant that God formalizes with Abram in the rest of the chapter? Well, first, we know that this is a covenant because God calls it that in verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, all over chapter 15 from verse 7 to the end, uh, this is all considered the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And if you'll remember, The parallels that we looked at in chapter 12, well, there's another one here. The parallel here is between this covenant and the Sinai covenant found in Exodus 20. The connection is seen in two particular points of parallel. First, the way the covenant is introduced in verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This has the the ring of formal language repeated from one covenant to the next, showing that the covenant is being formalized at this point. And I say formalized because, as we'll see in a moment, what this covenant guarantees was previously promised to Abraham. So the covenant promises were there, but the ceremony in chapter 15 formalizes it as if documents had been signed. The second particular that draws a parallel to the Sinai covenant is found in verses 12 and 17. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then in verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now listen to Exodus 20, verses 18 and 21. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. So the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. The presence of the Lord is marked on both occasions with great darkness, with smoke, and with fear. So we are meant to see a connection between these two covenants, and that connection is that they both mark points of beginning for the people of Israel. They both relate to life in the land of promise. That's what this covenant is all about, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. Or in verse 18, on that same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. This covenant is about the land of promise. And Abraham's descendants, who will come from his own body, as it said in verse 4, have an interest in this covenant. This is not, as our Presbyterian brothers believe, the covenant of grace. This is a covenant concerning Abram's descendants according to the flesh and their life in the promised land. Now, to be sure, Abram is not just the father of the Jewish nation, his descendants according to the flesh, but he is also the father of all who believe, his descendants according to faith. And in chapter 12, when the promise was made, it said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise concerns both Abraham's descendants, the seed according to the flesh, who is Christ, who will be a blessing to all who believe, the seed according to faith. But the covenant formalized here in chapter 15 is concerning Abraham's descendants according to the flesh. And as Nehemiah Cox says, Abraham is to be considered in a double capacity, He is the father of all the true believers and the father and root of the Israelite nation. God entering into a covenant with him for both of these seeds, and since they are formally distinguished from one another, their covenant interest must necessarily be different and fall under distinct consideration. The blessing appropriate to either must be conveyed in a way agreeable to their peculiar and respective covenant interest. These things may not be confounded without a manifest hazard to the most important articles in the Christian religion. So when they are confused, when this is thought to be an administration of the covenant of grace, it leads to a misunderstanding of the nature of the covenant of grace itself. Because we're told in the New Testament, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, in other words, there are some in the nation of Israel, according to the flesh, who do not believe. They are not descendants of Abraham by faith, but only by the flesh. And if you take this covenant to be an administration of the covenant of grace, that then you conclude that it is possible to be in the covenant of grace outwardly, but not spiritually And on that basis, they then justify the practice of infant baptism. The infant children of believers, as they say, are in the covenant outwardly by virtue of their parentage, but not inwardly. They're not inwardly in the covenant until such a time as they make their own profession of faith. But to believe that about the new covenant is, as Cox said, to confound these issues to make a hazard of very important doctrines. We understand the covenant with Abram to be a covenant for his descendants according to the flesh and not the covenant of grace because we understand that the scriptures teach that the, covenant, the grace of salvation was imputed, imparted to Abraham apart from this covenant. Had this been the covenant of grace, the new covenant, established in Christ's blood, then it would grant salvation. But it doesn't. Reformed Baptist pastor Pascal Denault writes that Scripture does not affirm that God gave His grace to Abraham through the covenant, but through the promise. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant contained a promise. This promise was the revelation of the covenant of grace. And so we note the relationship between verse 6 and the rest of the chapter. Abram did not obtain righteousness, justification before God, by virtue of the covenant, but by faith in the promise. The covenant came after. In fact, it was the grace of God imputing the righteousness of Christ to Abram by faith that made him a fit recipient to be the head of this new covenant community that God enters into with him. Is there grace in this covenant with Abraham? Absolutely. Any covenant the Almighty God condescends to make with men is by virtue of his grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor. But that does not make it the covenant of grace. Rather, the grace of these lesser covenants points the way forward to the actual covenant of grace that is established in the blood of Christ in the New Testament. This covenant includes the shedding of blood, the sacrifice of a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, But Christ came as a high priest, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The covenant with Abraham is a covenant concerning his descendants according to the flesh and their life in the land of Canaan, but it contains within it the promise of spiritual descendants and an everlasting inheritance. The Abrahamic covenant, we might say, is pregnant with the covenant of grace, but it is not the covenant of grace itself. This is key to our understanding of justification by faith alone, our understanding of the nature of national Israel, the land of Canaan, and the practice of baptism. We'll talk more about baptism in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 17, but for now, let us rejoice in the promise, just as Abraham did, and like Abraham, let us trust in Adonai Jehovah, the sovereign one who promised, who brought it to pass in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, and who continues even today to raise up spiritual descendants to Abraham, the father of the faithful. Let's pray.